If you got a Bible, we're going to be, um, the screen says John 18. We're actually going to begin in John 6 because we're going to trace um, a character, um, a, a real person, uh, but uh, a character in the book of John. We're going to trace his story uh, from his first mention to really the climax of his story, which is uh, John 18. So we'll get there in just a little bit. But uh, I want to tell you a story up front, and then we'll get into uh, what, what God has in store for us tonight from this um, from this story. It's kind of a down story, so uh, I try to be cheerful and uplifting, especially for you folks that come back for our evening services. Sometimes I just really give people a hard time in the mornings. <laughs> that's not my goal. Uh, maybe that's why they don't come back. Um, that's, uh, I should do the reverse, right? Uh, but no, I, I uh, um, try always to uh, bring hope and, 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 and um, just, you know, optimism to, to our lives and to, from the Word. I believe the ultimate message of God's Word is that He is for us and that He is good to us. But sometimes there's some stories that aren't, um, don't end happily ever after. Uh, it doesn't have to be your story, but it is this guy's story tonight. But before we get there, long, long ago, there was a king. You've probably heard of him before. At one time, he was thought to be the savior the nation had been waiting for. Uh, but that was a foregone conclusion at this point because things had not went the way they expected. Once he commanded crowds of thousands, but now he could barely scramble together a dozen or Less. He found himself in a situation that he could never have expected. Uh, he walked the path of exiles across the Kidron Valley. Legends refer to this place as the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Any chance of him being a somebody ended when he walked that path. People crossed this river and entered this valley. They rarely ever made it back alive. Yet, uh, rather than leading to the wilderness, this king went up the backside of the Mount of Olives and found a private pathway that he must have trod before. Took a private pathway up the side to a secret garden at the top of the mountain near a wine press. Upon making it to the top, he collapsed in exhaustion, dread, and defeat. He began to pray, not my will, but thy will be done. Trembling at what God's will might be for him in the hours to come, he still yet entrusted himself into the hands of God. As the night grew darker and his anxiety intensified and the mood in the air grew more bleak, he could sense that trouble was closing in, that a battle might be on the horizon. Whispers began to travel through the air that he had been betrayed and that his potential expected glory would be supplanted by something, by someone else. But none of his small company dared to say a word to him in fear of causing him even more grief. Now, I know what you're thinking, of course. This is what happened the night before Jesus died. But the king that we are referring to is not Jesus, at least not exactly. That's similar to his story, but it's not his story that I'm referring to. This king lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He was a king of great popularity and fame. He was loved by practically everybody. He had done so much for his people. He had given them a capital city. He had given them peace and rest from their enemies. He had secured favor from their, for, from their God after years of the nation lacking spiritually insight and direction and being wandering as a nation. He had given them a central place of worship after decades of no corporate national gatherings. He restored prayer to the nation. He gave the nation many songs to sing. He gave them an anthem to, to take as their identity and make them stand above all the rest in a light to the world. He promoted equal opportunity and gave place to some of the lowest and misunderstood in society and made them his mighty men. He was a great man 
with many accomplishments and trophies, but better than that, he was a good man. He was a man after God's own heart. But somewhere along the way, he got off track. Maybe the power went to his head. Maybe the fame and the adoration got him a little bit too big for his own good. Maybe he was just exhausted after years of doing good for others, but not getting much back from others. For whatever reason, after a few attempts to do good went awry, he made, him, he made some grave mistakes. And his resulting sins were great or greater as his previous accomplishments were. While his kingdom stayed steady for a while, his family unraveled thread by thread. And eventually, his family woes bled over into his kingdom. And before he knew it, he found himself outside of his city, ousted and exiled from his throne. Somehow the king's son had won the heart of the nation out from underneath him. Somehow all the king's men had turned on him and were plotting with his rebellious son. No one, including the king, could understand how this had happened until it was too late. And then it happened. Now that king is none other than King David, who saw his kingdom ripped from underneath him by his own son. By his son Absalom, had, he had not acted alone, though. He had help from one of David's closest friends. This is how that story unfolds. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook or the valley Kidron. All the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until all the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. This is so important, and we've talked about this before, but I don't want to move past this. David understood that the ark of God is what gave people solace, that gave people the comfort and knowledge that God was with them. And Zadok knew what he was doing. We're going to take God with us. If Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom, we're taking God with us, so God will be for us and against him. If we take God out of the city, God will be with us and against the city, and Absalom will have no chance chance at victory if God is not with him because they believe God lived in this box God lived in this sacred chest so Zadok said king we'll bring the ark with us but David said no 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 I've manipulated my way through life before we're not doing that this time he said if I find favor in the eyes of the Lord he will bring me back I don't have to manipulate him or force things to go my way I am going to surrender to his will even though I don't think this is his will even though this is something the enemy has done to me I am accepting it as if it's coming from God's hands and here's something that's so, so special about David. Even as a sinner, even as a man who cheated, even as a man who murdered, even as a man who did so many vile things, in the deepest part of his heart was that reliance, that dependence, that awareness that God's will was always best. And even if it seemed like it was against him for a little while, he would be foolish to try to go against God. Because God ultimately would always save his people, even if for a little while things looked rough. So I love that statement of David. If I find favor in his eyes, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But 
If he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am, let him do to me what seems good to him. Can you imagine praying that kind of prayer? You're the king of the nation of God. You are the king who has control of the ark of God, where God's presence is, and you can manipulate his presence if you want to. But David says, if God says, I have no pleasure in you, David, then if that's God's will, I would rather have it than anything else. Because what he decides is good is better than what I can dream up as good. So powerful, isn't it? But the story goes on. The king also said to Zadok, the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem. So he says, you guys are the men of God. People like you need to be in the city, be in refuge, and be in help to people that might wonder where God is in all this. And you need to go back and help them because God will take care of me. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. So he and his whole cabinet, all of his mighty men, all of his inner circle, went up the side of the Mount of Olives to this wine press, to this garden. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Now you maybe have never heard of Ahithophel aside from having a pretty cool and also difficult to pronounce name, Ahithophel was David's closest and most trusted advisor. He handled David's books. He handled David's plans. He made arrangements for David. He knew of the closest and intimate thoughts of David. He knew of all the innermost activities of the kingdom. Ahithophel knew what David knew, and he was the closest person to the king in all the land. And now it made sense to David. Absalom didn't just win the nation over by being outside the gate, talking sweet things and nice things to the people. Absalom had an in. Absalom had the ear of David's closest advisor. Absalom had gotten to David's best friend. And David's best friend and most trusted friend betrayed him. And gave his kingdom to the anti-David, to the one who was maybe from David's same line but was nothing like David. And it was thanks to Ahithophel that Absalom had brought David's kingdom to naught. Now Ahithophel would go on to counsel Absalom to do all that he could to ruin and disgrace his father's legacy. He told uh, Absalom on day one, we've got to find David tonight and kill him. I know where he's at. I know where he goes and prays. Let's go take an entourage. I'll do it myself. Give me a sword and give me an army and he'll be dead before dawn. But Absalom thought, I don't know if I can kill my own father like that. That's a little bit rough, Ahithophel. And David had one loyal ally still in the ranks. His name was Hushai. Hushai uh, had, went, had met David in the garden, went back to the, the palace and talked to Absalom. And he gave Absalom consent and said, Absalom, I don't think you should follow Ahithophel's advice. 
So while Ahithophel thought he was going to have David in his grasp, it didn't end that way. Absalom uh, took Hushai's advice to uh, wait a few days and let uh, David actually get regrouped and actually build an army for himself. Of course, that spelled Absalom's undoing. Hushai's advice led Absalom into the crosshairs, and ultimately there was a broody, brutal, bloody battle led to the fall and loss of many soldiers, including Absalom. Now, that story doesn't really end that well. Uh, David may become king again, but he isn't happy because he lost his son. And of course, there's not a clear, there's not a, a, an even parallel to the story of Jesus. But you see the connection there, don't you? Down to the same garden and down to the same scenario where you have the trusted friend betraying him to try to enforce a false kingdom. When Ahithophel knew that Absalom wasn't going to follow his advice, he was convinced David would yet return to power. And that his own chance, for whatever reason that he was against David, we don't really know the backstory. Some speculate it was for revenge. Some speculate it was because he wanted power for himself. We don't know. For whatever reason, when this plot didn't go through, when it was foiled, this is the last word we get on this man. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the tomb of his father. And that's the last word on the man who David would write many psalms. Psalm 55, David writes about how Ahithophel was his best friend and how it crushed him to think someone would betray him like that. But of course, his plot was foiled and he took his own life because he saw that he had nothing to live for. History is full of stories like this. People see a chance to advance themselves and they would even be willing to betray anyone they've stood beside and everything they've stood for if it means taking an elevator up one floor even. This doesn't happen overnight. It's not always deeply premeditated. It's just something that happens in the process of time. We set our eyes on the wrong things, and eventually the wrong things set their eyes on us. There's an allure to this world, a want for prosperity, for success, for fame, for pleasure, for approval, to be envied by the, by the rest. There is an allure to this world that slithers its way into every avenue of our lives that shows up in the most unlikely of places with one goal in hopes in hopes to let's go to the next slide in hopes of catching our eye and capturing our heart because if it can catch our eyes and distract us it can capture our hearts and enslave us When Jesus began his ministry, he attracted many eyes. People weren't sure what his motives were or what his intentions were, but they did not hide their own. People had a great expectation for what a Messiah would be. They dreamed of a Messiah coming and solving all their problems. They wanted a Messiah who would be their personalized Lord and Savior. Now, don't confuse that with personal Lord and Savior. I'm talking about someone that you can mold and shape in your own image. Someone that you can give what you want and say, hey, I need you to do this, this, and this because this is what I need in a Lord and Savior for my life. This is what I expect from you to give to me. I want us to remember an earlier story in John where people, where we saw people's expectations bump up against the reality of what God was doing through Jesus. Because it's in this story 
that we're introduced to a type of Jesus follower that Satan loves in hopes that we will all be. You think, what kind of Jesus follower would Satan love? Well, obviously not a genuine one. But he hopes that we will all fall into this category. Now, this takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000. And we've skipped over this. We briefly touched on it before, but it'll be worth the second look because it leads us into one specific character. But John 6, verse 14 and 15, this is the aftermath of the feeding of the 5,000. It says in verse 14, Those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, said, This is truly the prophet or the Messiah who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So Jesus perceived that they were going to force him to be their king, take him by force. How would you make someone be a king? That really doesn't make any sense, but they were going to try to do it when he perceived this. As in, this was not part of his plan. Now, we assume up to this point in the story that Jesus was a king, that he was about to establish a kingdom. But he made clear in this chapter that that was not his aim and that was not his intention, at least not the way they expected it. Now, y'all know what happens next. He crosses the lake. He walks on water. They spend a little while out to sea. And then the crowds are already on the other side when they arrive the next morning. Verse 25, the story continues. When they found him, the crowds, on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Acting as if they just happened to bump into him again. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs or that you believe that I am from God. You ate of the loaves and were filled and you are here for more of that aren't you do not labor for the food which perishes but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the son of man will give you because god the father has set his seal on him so jesus exposes this this thing in them that sees in him an opportunity that sees in them a chance to advance their own agenda to get somewhere in this world to get more of what they felt like would make them happy they saw that he gave them food they thought hey we need more of that and we can add a few more things to the list because food is just the beginning of what will fix our problems because there's this thing called Rome if you haven't heard about him haven't heard about it Jesus there's this emperor called Caesar if you haven't heard about him Jesus and we believe that you can take him on and we believe you can establish our kingdom and you can give us houses we didn't build and wells we didn't dig and gardens we didn't plant and vineyards we didn't plant and you can give us what we have been waiting for because we really need it and that's when Jesus began to, began to pick and prod and expose them that they were after something that they wanted, but did God want that for them? And was that the answer to all of their problems after all? They go back and forth, and down in verse 35, Jesus says, For I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And they hear that and they think, well, hey, we want that bread. We want that water. If you can give it to us, Jesus, where is it at? Of course, they say, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And Jesus says, you're waiting for a physical provision, but I've already told you it's deeper than that. It's better than that. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he makes this audacious claim, I have come down from heaven. He says, you think that a throne of this earth is what I'm after? 
You think that what I need is a throne on this earth that gives me power and fortune and wealth? Do you not know where I'm from? Do you not know what I have? Do you not know who I am? And they didn't. And I think even more, he says, do you not know who you are? You are children of the Most High God. And you have the potential for such great things. And yet you've narrowed it. And you've watered it down to something that's so here and now, time and place, flesh and blood. And if I give you what you want, it wouldn't satisfy you. But if it did satisfy you for a little while, it would not last. I've come to rescue you from this time and place mentality, from this give it to me now and it'll make me happy frame of mind. He says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that all who have, he has given me, should, I should lose no, nothing or no one, but should raise it up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus pushes off. He looks into the future and he says, there's something bigger out there, y'all. There's something better out there. I'm not denying that you have needs now, but I'm trying to make you aware of something even better to come. So he raises the stakes and suggests that he had come down from heaven to do more than just raise our level of comfort to secure this world. But because we need not get too comfortable in this world, because this world is so unsecured and unstable, we need to be rescued from it. And most of all, we need to be saved from its trappings. Jesus goes on to talk about true discipleship, how it requires embracing him and consuming him. And at the end of this chapter, many leave. You've heard the story. You've read the story. Many leave from following Jesus because they weren't true followers. They were at best fans. In verse 66, the story concludes. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now, you know that there are 12 disciples, but there once were many, many more, dozens, hundreds even. But we don't know their names, do we? Isn't this crazy? Isn't this awesome? Not awesome for them, but we don't know their names. There were so many other disciples, yet we only know 12. But one of the 12 actually has far more in common with the ones that left than the ones that stayed. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Of course, he knew that they were thinking about it because obviously he, all of a sudden he was not going to give them what they thought he was going to give them. But Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he says, Jesus, I have in mind what I think a Messiah is, what I think a Savior is, and yeah, you're not really meeting that. You're not really lining up with that. You're not really registering with what I thought you were going to be. But here's what I do know. You have the Word of God, and you have been giving us the wisdom of heaven. And if we walk away from you, there's nobody that has what you have. There's nobody that offers what you offer. And yes, you might be holding back from us now, and we might wish that you would give us a little bit more stuff now, and we expected more stuff now, but you keep talking about eternity. And you keep talking about everlasting life. And nobody's ever promised us, and nobody's ever given us confidence that they knew what was going to happen when this life ends. 
Nobody's ever told us that there's something next that's better than now. And there's something next that we can look forward to and depend on and live for now. For years, we've heard the Pharisees say that it's all about being obedient and just living slavishly for God and hoping you fall into good hands when you die. For years, we heard the Sadducees say that there's nothing when you die. You live for the pleasure of God and then you're gone forever. But you tell us there's something to live for now and there's somewhere to live in later. And we have heard that and we can't stop listening to that and yeah we're a little disappointed that you're not going to just give us all the stuff we want but maybe you know best maybe we didn't have it right after all so Jesus answered and said did I not choose you the 12 and one of you one of you is the devil and can you imagine what it was like in the room that day it had at one point been full to the brim And then there were just 12. And Jesus says, I know y'all stuck around because you believe I'm the Messiah, but one of y'all, one of you, is just like the rest of them that left. Actually, you're worse because you're possessed by this world and by the enemy of God. Of course, John knows the end of the story. John says he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he who... He was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Satan had kept one of his own in the ranks that day. Even though many departed from following Jesus, Judas would go on to typify what being a genuine follower does not look like. All the way to the point that the reason he was following Jesus became the very reason he would betray Jesus. Does that make sense? Probably not. That's the point. The very reason Judas had signed up to be a Jesus follower was the very reason he would exit the room because what Jesus, what he thought Jesus would give him, turns out he wouldn't. So he decided that something had to be done. Now, what do I I mean by that? Well, does anybody know what an opportunist is? Webster's defines an opportunist as someone or as a person who exploits circumstances to gain immediate advantage rather than being guided by consistent principles or values. Someone who would be willing to trade their standards in if it means gaining something for themselves. Now, usually this is someone who places themselves in the company of somebody or somebodies that they think will benefit them or bring that gain to their cause. Judas joined Jesus' movement because he saw gain for himself. He saw Jesus rise to the top as a way for his stature to rise, to grab onto his coattails and experience bliss. It could be said of Judas, like Paul, uh, the way Paul warned Timothy of certain people in this world. People who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. As in the only, the, the, the clearest association to being godly is some sort of prosperity, some sort of gain. And this is what Paul says. These people desire to be rich. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, I know we get a little bit, you know, sensitive to this because who doesn't want to be rich? Who doesn't want to make money? Is Paul talking about everybody that wants to be rich or everybody that wants... Paul's talking about anybody that looks at this world and says, what is there for me? Rather than saying, what is there for God? 
Paul's just saying, listen, you cannot take my advice. You don't have to believe me. You can say, hey, you're just a you know, crazy fundamentalist. He said, listen, I just know how it is. That there is a temptation you will encounter. You may escape it. God bless you if you do. You may rise above it. But everyone who sets their eyes on this world and looks for an opportunity to enhance and increase their own fame and their own stature and their own fortune, you will fall into temptation. He's not saying you might. What does he say? You will fall into temptation. Into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's not being mild there, is he? He goes on and says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some, not all, not all, of course, not all. Of course, many thought they were the exception. But those many wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pangs. And that's Judas. We see this all over Judas. If you'll skip over to chapter 12, Judas was the one who was at Bethany with Jesus when he was having dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And his story continues in chapter 12 of John. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there, were, there they made supper, and Mary served, but Lazarus was the one who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with fragrance of oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor as if he actually cared for the poor? But John says he did not say this because he cared for the poor. He said this because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Oh, he seems so sanctimonious. I'm sure he gave a lot of stuff away to people. But his heart was full of greed and corruption because everything that Jesus used, he looked at as an opportunity to use for himself. He was there for fame and fortune, not for charity or for kindness. Of course, Jesus rebukes Judas and says, leave her alone. But the story will continue on in chapter 13. We'll look at that in just a minute. But Judas was looking out for himself, only seeing Jesus as a means of advancing himself. He never truly loved Jesus. His goal was never truly to magnify or glorify Jesus. Satan had been using, had been using Judas. He had tried to co-opt the church since the beginning to establish a foothold to use Jesus to ensnare people for himself. That's the story of Simon the sorcerer in Acts. That's the story of many in church history who exploit Jesus for earthly, worldly, carnal fame and gain. They never pray thy will. It's always my will. It's in you and it's in me. And it's in us to follow down this path. There's a whole network on cable television devoted to this sort of religion. Exploiting Jesus for carnal, worldly gain and fame. It's never thy will. It's always my will. And they'll show you verses that prove it should always be your way. There's little Judas in all of us. We may not want to hear that, but I know that, in me at least. I don't know about y'all. The story goes on in John 13 that Jesus tells Peter that one of them is not clean. One of them, as 
has not been clean and apparently cannot be clean. But in that chapter, in verse number 24, the story goes in a very different, surprising direction. Jesus had told them one of them would, would betray him, and Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of them he spoke, who, of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered and said, It is he, who, he, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Here's something important. Everyone in the room that night thought it could be them. In Matthew's gospel, they say, is it I? You know why they said that? They confessed. They, they told themselves. Every one of them had a little bit of Judas. Every one of us has a little bit of Judas. They were aware of it. They even confessed it. But there was just, alas, one Judas, one Judas that Luke 22 tells us that Satan entered into, and then Matthew 26 tells us that he went to the chief priest looking for a way to betray Jesus. But then in verse 27 of chapter 13, the scripture says, after the piece of bread was handed to him, Satan entered him, and Jesus said, what you do, do it quickly. So the decision was made. Judas wasn't getting what he wanted out of Jesus. So he got away from Jesus and attempted to erase Jesus from history. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't at all. Why would he do that? I mean, why wouldn't he just say, okay, Jesus, you're not getting me what I wanted, so I'm just going to check out and leave y'all alone. Y'all are crazy. Y'all are just completely delusional. I'm out of here. He wasn't getting what he wanted out of Jesus, so he got away from Jesus, and then he attempted to erase Jesus from history. Why? Let me be very, very clear. There is no explanation. He never gave one because he really never had one. Because at this point, Judas was just, was just along for the ride. He had bought the lie that Satan sold him. That what he was looking for was always under the next coin or through the next door. Judas, listen buddy, it's just the next coin. I know you thought you would get it when you got the last coin. You got to get one more coin. You've got to go through one more door. Judas, I know I told you that if you just did this one thing, you'd be happy, but you know what? It's after the next coin. It's under the next coin. It's through the next door. Listen, you've got to believe me, Judas. I haven't lied to you. I wouldn't do you wrong. you just got to go to the next coin, the next prize, the next door. That's the trap Satan sets for all of us. It's always just a little more of your life for me, and I'll get you what you want. And he never gives it to us. It's like the woman at the well. It was just one more man right? It's always just one more thing, one more door, one more possession, one more hit, one more drink, but it's never there, is it? And it makes no sense why somebody would do what Jesus, Judas did, but it never will make sense because Satan has come to do one thing, to destroy us. He doesn't have to give an explanation for his actions. He just wants to kill us. There's no consolation prize. There never will be. Judas' story comes to an end in chapter 18 of John. We'll read that and we'll close. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. 
Then Judas, having received detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came with their lanterns and torches and weapons, as if Jesus was going to fight them. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things and would, that would come upon him, went forward and said, Whom are you seeking? And they answered and said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now notice your Bibles, he is italicized. He didn't say, I am he. He said, I am. He said in the Greek, ego eimi. In the Hebrew, Yahweh. And when he said, I am, when he said, Yahweh, <laughs> they drew back and they fell to the ground. When he spoke the name of God that no Jew had ever spoken before, when he spoke the holy, sacred name of God, when he said, I am, when he said, Yahweh, it knocked them over. To let Satan know and Satan's men know they had nothing on him and could not raise a finger against him lest he allow them to. Jesus said, I am he, and Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, I think he even helped them up, whom are you seeking? And they said, well, what was that? What was that about? And then he said, they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered and said, I've told you that I am, and I think they braced themselves. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. The disciples, he said that, that it might be fulfilled of those you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut his right ear off. He aimed for his neck, but he was not a good swing. He was a fisherman, right? They swung wide. He tried to cut the guy's head off. It got his ear. And then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? We'll get into more of that next time, but... Jesus looked Judas in the eyes who thought he was ruining Jesus' life. Jesus says to Judas, he says to Satan, this is all a part of my Father's will. That I would be betrayed by one of my own to send a message to the whole world. This world and all of its deception may have captured you, but by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you can be set free. You may be like Judas tonight, and you've looked for what can gain, what can increase, what can uh, better yourself. You have been trapped in the world's deception, and you're always looking for one more thing or the next thing, and maybe now you realize there is no next thing that's going to make you or, or give you what you've been looking for, but only the death and resurrection of Jesus can set you free from that trap. Like David prayed, but on such a more cosmic scale, Jesus entrusted himself into the hands of God so that we would trust him with our lives and know that our best always comes in God's time by God's way. But it's always in God's time, and it's only by God's way. You can step off the treadmill that leaves you wanting against all of its promises to take you somewhere. You can click climbing staircases that are never-ending. You can realize that God has a dream and plan for you that are far greater and is far greater than our tiny little minds can ever imagine or ask for. They wanted some bread. Jesus said, is that all you want? I don't know what Judas wanted. Maybe he wanted some power. Maybe he wanted some fame or some fortune or some success. But is that all you really want, Judas? Aren't you made for more than that? 
Our brains think in flesh and blood, numbers and size, but God thinks much bigger and broader and better. God thinks about things that can actually bring us peace and joy, things that can actually break chains and improve lives. So rather than coming at God as opportunists, we can come trusting Him for every opportunity He affords us, knowing He has a far better reality than we could ever dream up. I tell you, verse 6 is so powerful. The name of Jesus knocked them over. All we got to do is trust in Jesus' name because it can knock down the false and counterfeit ways the devil's trying to take us and deceive us with. We need to seek him, understand what he has done for us, why he died for us, what his resurrection promises us, true, abundant, eternal life, that we may find in him what we'll never find in this world. See, we can choose principles and values over false hopes and empty promises, embrace true life, and be embraced by true love, something Judas never got. We can be saved from this world that promises so much but never provides and receives heaven's promise of eternal life that always satisfies. You know, teasing the end of the story, you know, Jesus and Judas' life, their stories end similarly. Both are hanged. One hangs himself. One's hung for others. One remains dead, but one rose again. One suffers alone in hell, but one is seated at the right hand of God in glory. Many go the road of Judas because the devil tells them, you just got to believe me. You just got to trust me. I'll get you what you want. But those that go the road of Jesus are met by Jesus at the cross and he says, this is not for you to bear. This is for me. See, Judas tried to force his way into his success and what did it cost him? He hung himself. Whereas Jesus surrendered to whatever God had in store for him that included him being hung on a cross. And yet we know how his story ends. So church, I guess my message tonight is sometimes it's not what it seems. Sometimes this world is not as it seems. Sometimes we have to go with what God has promised us. Even if there's a voice in us that says, I don't know about that. Because the proof is in the name and the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's not make the same mistakes that Judas made. Let's not spend our lives looking for one more coin, one more thing, when Jesus is out there looking for one more soul, including yours, including everybody's. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to combat the devil in his tricks, in his deception, and in his traps. Satan is out there looking for whom he may devour, up and down, to and fro on the earth, looking for some soul to ensnare and enslave, to deceive with that lie that there's just one more thing and it'll make you happy. 
Whereas Jesus came from heaven and he lived a life of sinlessness and perfection. And he died a death that he did not deserve to die for the sins of the world, the sins he did not commit, to save us from the enemy's traps. Father, Jesus' story is so tragic, but it was so avoidable. He thought the opportunity was one that he had to dream up and he had to force into reality, but the reality of it is, God, our little minds cannot comprehend what you've got in store for us. Our little brains want something that's so small and so silly and simple compared to what you've got in store for us. So, Father, may we see the bigger picture and surrender to the bigger kingdom and trust in the one who died for us, that he's got life to give us. May we say, as David said, let it be done as however he sees best and sees fit. Father, we love you. Thank you that Jesus is our living hope, that he gives us exactly what we need, even when we don't deserve it. We ask this in his amazing and mighty name. Amen.